I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. This is episode four, the story of Pauline Parker and Juliet Hume. Hi, and welcome back to Women in Crime. So this week, we will be discussing a gripping case out of New Zealand from the 1950s. There are a few cases that had elicited such an international buzz, and after hearing this case, you'll definitely understand why. Um, So before we get started, I just want to tell you why I chose this case. So you know our friend Toby Ball from Crime Writers On. So Toby does, um, well, let me tell the listeners, Toby Ball is an author of true crime novels. And as I said, he's one of the hosts on Crime Writers On. And I was a guest on his book club podcast called Ball's Deep Dive. (laughs) Ball's Deep Dive. His name's Toby Ball. Get it? I get it. Okay. So anyway, he he is a wonderful person. I met him actually in Chicago at the True Crime Podcast Festival. So I I was on his book club podcast and the book we read was Anne Perry and the Murder of the Century, written by Peter Graham. And it was a book that covered the case of Pauline Parker and Juliet Hume. So I first discussed it there and I became so into this case. So I want to thank Toby for introducing me to that book because I never probably would have read it, to be honest with you. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Heavenly Creatures. You know, I did see that movie. You did? Oh, no. No, I saw it a really long time ago because it's actually about 20 years old. Yeah, 1994, Peter Jackson. 
So I, yeah. I do know a little bit about the story, but okay. I, I don't know the deep dive at all. And as we'll talk about a little later, the book obviously is based on true events, but there's a lot that the movie got wrong. Um, as so, always the case. Yes, yeah, exactly. In 1954, best friends, Juliet and Pauline, were just 15 and 16 years old, respectively, and they were a very unlikely pair. Juliet came from a very well-off family. Her family had recently moved to New Zealand from London. The reason they actually moved to New Zealand was her father, Dr. Henry Hume, was a prominent nuclear physicist, and he got the job as rector of Canterbury University in New Zealand. So they moved to New Zealand from London for this very high-profile job. Um, They were very well off. They lived on a sprawling estate. Uh, The house even had a name, you know, like those really... The manors. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. It was a very fancy house. Her mother, Hilda Hume, was described as a very social lady. Some say too social. I'll let you figure out what that means. She was a very attractive woman. She was part of the marriage council in New Zealand. So she did a little work with couples therapy. Okay. So I've never heard. I was going to say, what's a marriage council? Yeah, I don't know. Okay. Okay, so Juliet was described as tall, attractive, smart, and confident. Although you wouldn't know by looking at her because she presented herself with an air of confidence, she had a very tumultuous childhood. Many issues stemmed from childhood illness. So when they lived in London, it was during World War II, and there was some reports that said she was shell-shocked as a child. They often had to take cover, her and her family, But what really was problematic for her in childhood, she had a serious bout of tuberculosis. And as a child, since she was diagnosed with tuberculosis, she was actually sent away for many months at a time to warmer weather. So she was sent to live in the Caribbean, and then she was sent to live in South Africa. She spent a lot of time away from her family, even when she wasn't ill. Her family would often send her away to boarding schools. So she spent a lot of her childhood away from her family, and there was even... I read in the book that we I mentioned before, Peter Graham's book, it talked about how the mother, when Juliet was just five years old, in the middle of the night, the mother left Juliet by herself because she went to the doctor with a younger brother. Like, it just seemed like there was a lot of uh, attachment stuff going on. Who did she live with? Like other family members or nannies? Or? They were, Exactly. Um, she'd okay. be sent to live with her aunt in South Africa. She went with a caretaker, I guess we could say a nanny to the Caribbean. So Pauline was a bit different. Pauline Parker came from a more modest background. So they lived in Christchurch, New Zealand. Family was working class. Father George was a fish shop manager, also known as a fishmonger. Did you know that? I did not know that. And Mother Honora, often referred to as Nora, she was, I guess you could say she was a homemaker, but they had tenants living in their home because they couldn't afford their house. So they had, they boarded people there. And the mother was, uh, there were some accounts that she was abusive, depressed, a lot of issues going on between Pauline and her mother. Were there other siblings in their home? There were. So their first child was a stillborn, the family's first child. The second child born with Down syndrome. Uh, So they had a little bit of a tough family dynamic, but they worked really hard. They were an honest, you know, working family. Pauline also had childhood illness that would greatly influence her as well. Similar to her soon-to-be best friend, Juliet. She was diagnosed with osteomyelitis, which is a painful condition that left her with a permanent limp. It's an issue in the bones that's very painful. Okay. She was described as homely, a bit of a misfit. She was short with uncharacteristically short hair for girls at that time. And she was often angry, described in several reports as always having an angry scowl on her face. Her relationship with her parents was reportedly strained, and this relationship would just continue to get worse upon meeting Juliet. 
So the girls first met when they were both excused from PA class due to their lingering medical condition. So as I mentioned, um, Juliet had issues with breathing and Pauline had issues with her foot. And so they both would sit out for hours together and they very quickly bonded. It was said that Pauline worshipped Juliet. Remember, Juliet was the one who had a lot of money. She was considered very attractive and she had a lot of confidence. And I guess we could say Pauline was almost the opposite on every account. The girls spent most of their time at the Hume household because that was the sprawling estate. They had horses and it was very, it was a really fun place for Pauline to be. Of course, that's she, a place you want to be when you're, yes. when you ha- come from a poorer home. Exactly. You know, the friend who has everything. Yeah, she really revered her. There was a lot of, it seemed like she really looked up to her and really wanted to be here. She had a huge fondness for Hilda, Juliet's mom. She didn't like her own mother. So it was here at this estate they called Alam. It was here that they created a fantasy world, these two girls. So it was called the fourth world. They each took on new personas, alter egos. They created a secret language and a whole system of encryption between the two of them. These girls were inseparable. They had sleepovers. They took baths together. They did not spend time with anyone but each other for several years. Sounds already like this could be a problem, right? Well, I was thinking taking baths together is a little odd at 15 and 16, but... Yeah, so, you know, that comes into play okay. later on. So the problem first began when Juliet and Pauline were threatened with separation. So, as I said, these girls were inseparable. The parents were not thrilled with this. There was uh, suspected lesbianism. At the time in New Zealand, lesbianism was equated with mental illness, and it was very much frowned upon. Remember, we're talking about the mid-50s, So it's quite different than it is today, right? Okay, so the problem started when Juliet and Pauline were threatened with separation. Henry Hume had resigned from his his position at Canterbury College. Um, He was forced to resign because they no longer wanted him there. He was a brilliant man. However, he wasn't very social. And in that position, they needed someone more social than him. At the same time, they were filing for divorce. Hilda was having an affair with actually a gentleman who was boarding at their estate. And Juliet had caught her mother and this man in bed. But that's neither here nor there. But I'm sure that was traumatizing. (laughs) Yeah. So since Henry was going to be leaving England and they were getting a divorce, it was decided that Juliet, remember, she she had been ill when she was younger with TB, tuberculosis. She had another bout of it around this time. And she was hospitalized for several months over it. So they decided that she would be sent to live with Henry's sister in South Africa because the climate would be beneficial to her health. And she was okay with this, because she said, that's fine, as long as Pauline comes with me. She did not. She was angry at her mom about the affair. Pauline was not happy at home. They kind of saw this as their ticket out. Their final plan was to actually end up in the United States. So they just saw this as one stop on their journey together. Okay. So the Humes believed that this was going to happen. They were okay with Pauline coming, or they were at least humoring the girls. Um, Henry Hume even said he would pay for Pauline to join. However, it was only if Pauline's mom would permit it. And Pauline knew that her mother would never allow this. Ooh. Yeah. I think I see where we're going with this. Yeah. Okay. So the girls believed that Pauline's hated mother was the only obstacle to their future happiness. Everything was all figured out for them, but they they had to think about how are we going to get this obstacle out of the way? And the Humes, just out of curiosity, Mm -hmm. the father wasn't just saying this, that they were seriously going to there's mixed reports by some reports it's we're just humoring the girls because we knew there was they were so obsessed with each other and inseparable so it was like yeah yeah she'll be able to come i'll even pay 
Okay. But, there, you know, so it's hard to know. But they thought, the girls it, thought the gr- at, okay. at the very least, the girls were sure that this was going to happen. So what did they do? The girls formed a plan to murder Pauline's mother in order to remove, obviously, this one obstacle that would get in their way. So their long-term plan was to go to South Africa, as planned, you know, to live with Henry's sister, and then head to the United States, where they believed they would publish their writings and work in film. Were they some sort of literature gurus? Or? So you know how I mentioned they had something called the fourth world? They were uh. into this imaginary universe. They spent all of their time writing about this. Pauline was very much into journaling. And this will come up later in trial. She journaled just about everything these two girls did. Talking about their fantasy lives together. Talking about their plans for the future. In all sorts of the way. And let me guess, those journals are going to come back to haunt her at trial. They will. And I'll be reading a few of the excerpts from this. Ooh. And Juliet had journals too. So it wasn't just Pauline. So let's jump to what actually happened. So they executed their plan. When I say plan, I'm going to wait till trial to explain to you how we know it was a plan, but it was very much premeditated. Understood. June 22nd, 1954, they invited Honora. Again, Honora is Pauline's mom to join them on a walk through Victoria Park. Um, After a few minutes of walking down a wooden path, Juliet walked ahead. Again, this is all according to a very uh, scripted plan. Okay. Juliet walked ahead, dropped a stone, and then called over Honora to have a look. When Honora bent down to pick up the stone or to take a look at what was going on, Pauline took a brick that was wrapped in a stocking and did one quick blow to Pauline's head. Wow. Did the one blow do it? Well, this is where things didn't go as planned because we know that the girls hoped that it was just one quick blow and they were planning on making it look like she had had a fall and she had hit her head Ah. and they were going to put her down an embankment. However, one quick blow did not do it. So Pauline hit her a few more times. Unfortunately, Honora had m- several defensive wounds that will you know, show that she fought back quite hard. At some point, Juliet took over and started beating her. And then at another point, it went back to Pauline with Juliet holding the mother down. Oh. It ended up that she had over 47 wounds. Some of those, they weren't all bludgeoned. There were about 20 that were from the brick, but then there was others from just other fighting. So Honora fought back. It took several hits and they had to hold her down. And finally, she succumbed to her injuries. The girls were blood soaked and hysterical. They ran for help, exclaiming that there had been a terrible accident. However, it did not take really long for the truth to emerge. They ran to uh, a tea shop to get help because that was closest to where they were. And they were just splattered in blood. It didn't fit with their story that this woman had hit her head and fallen. And then when... I guess it was the two people that worked at the tea shop. When they came to the aid of Honora, it was very clear by looking at her that something more sinister had happened. Right. She looked like she had just undergone an attack. And these two girls are covered in blood. So, you know, probably as you're saying it, I'm thinking this looks already very suspect. And not only were they covered in blood, they were giggling and their affect didn't really match what had happened. So they had called Henry Hume to pick up the girls because obviously at this point they don't know exactly what happened. They just know Pauline's mother has suffered an accident. And within a day or so, it becomes very clear. Um, it starts by Pauline confessing. And to, the, the to girls whom? Did she confess to the, to the police? Yeah. Uh, the police knew something was going on pretty quickly. And then Pauline confessed. And then when Juliet heard that Pauline confessed, she confessed as well because it was a sink or swim. It was a kind of relationship where we're going down together. We're going to do this. So both girls confessed to the crime. 
How long had these girls, so you said in the beginning they were 15 and 16. Do you know how long they had been sort of friends or like how long from the time they met until the time they executed this plan? Um, was it a year or two? Um, it was a couple of years. Okay. Yeah, because they had met in high school. Okay. So it had to have been a couple. It was one of those relationships that moved really fast, very quickly. Okay. Also, at one point, I told you how Juliet was hospitalized for TB. And Pauline was the only one there for her. Juliet's parents had abandoned her again. It, there was a, So Pauline, it's interesting. Pauline looked up to Juliet at the beginning. And then it almost became that Pauline was the caretaker. For, you know, they almost switched roles because she didn't have that support at home. And Pauline became, you know, all she had. So I want to skip ahead to trial because it was an actual media frenzy. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> so besides the fact that, you know, it's a upper class area, unlikely suspects, Henry Hume had a very high profile position and there was a lot of interesting arguments that would be brought up at trial. And that's where I want to spend more time. So the main question here was, were the girls insane? So the defense was trying to argue that they should be not guilty by reason of insanity. And they argued that the girl suffered from a rare disorder called Foley Adu. Have you ever heard of Foley Adu? I actually have not. Never. Okay. So, and I think I'm even saying it right. It's oh. Fr- it's a French word. Maybe, I was going to say, maybe maybe I don't know it because you're not. <laughs> it could be. Could be. So no, basically, I don't know that. So it's a shared delusional disorder or a mutually reinforcing paranoia between two people. Okay, wait, I've heard of, sorry, so mm-hmm. I have heard of shared delusional disorder, yep. and I swear this came up in the Slenderman case. You're absolutely right. Okay. Yep. So that's, I, a, that's a perfect example of this. Okay, with the two girls, uh, yes, sharing this delusion. I just hadn't heard, the, I guess, the French yes. term for it. So actually, LA Not So Confidential, our friends at that podcast, they just did a whole episode recently on Filet Adu, and they talk about that case, okay. along with this case. So they even helped me understand it even more, although I understood it because, you know, since I did study forensic psychology, this came up a lot. But I just want to talk a little bit more about what it is and whether or not there was evidence of this shared delusional disorder. So it could really manifest in two ways. So either you have a dominant person in a relationship who forms a delusion and imposes their delusion on the other person. So this would be a situation where since Juliet was like the more powerful one at some point, that she would have a delusion and Pauline, since she worshipped Juliet, she would take on, she would almost believe anything that okay. she said. And that was also, by the way, the exact case in the Slender, Slender Man. Man. Exactly. Exactly. So I understand that one. But what's okay. the other? The other one, which is very rare, is when two people suffer psychosis independent of each other. Like birds of a feather flock together? I guess so. Two, two people suffering from psychosis kind of find each other. Exactly. It's like, okay. It's like you think there's aliens out to kill you and I think there's aliens out to kill me. We're best friends now. Okay. So I think that's how that goes. So I'm going to assume they're – which? oh, no, I'm not going to assume. Which which are they trying to qualify under? They actually, from what, from what I could find, they were not – I mean, there was a lot of expert testimony. It seems from what I read, it looks like it was the first one. Okay. But it could be argued who was the more dominant one. That's really a subjective call. Because as I mentioned, at some point, their roles seem to have reversed a little bit after Juliet 
got that second bout of tuberculosis. It almost seemed that Pauline was the one who was in the higher position. Okay. But either way, I don't actually believe any of this was at play. I just think they were preoccupied with ideas of great power. I think they rejected morality. I think it's possible that they had a personality disorder, Mm -hmm. antisocial, narcissistic. And it's very clear that they were aware of what they were doing. And it was very much premeditated, as I'd like to talk about now. Do you think, we'll, we'll get to this, but mm-hmm. do you think also we should discuss the fact of their ages and how, I don't know if you're going to get to uh-huh. that at all, but yeah, yeah, they might have been premeditated, they might have been planned, they yeah. might not have been psychotic, mm-hmm. but we also know that, I mean, at, you know, 17-ish, yeah. are they making the same kind of rational decisions that yeah. a 30-year-old makes? That conversation is definitely one we're going to have when we talk about their sentence. Okay, Because it becomes very relevant okay. there. So I want to read a few entries from the diaries because they were instrumental at trial. As I said, Pauline kept a diary and the police were able to very quickly get this diary. However, after this happened that night, Hilda Hume asked her, uh, what what did they call it then? Groundskeeper to burn all of Juliet's journals. So I think she had a feeling that these journals would be incriminating and they got burned pretty quickly. So we don't know much of what was in Juliet's journals, but we have all of Pauline's. Well, her mom might not have been there for in the past, but she sure jumped in I then. know, she did. So some of the extracts of the diary were read in court. So from the trial transcript, we have a little bit. I so I just to want to this. remind you, the murder happened in June. So February, so four months prior, Pauline writes, why could mother not die? Dozens of people, thousands of people are dying every day. So why not mother and father too? Okay, so she started talking about Wait, so she says her father too. So even if they kill her mother, did they were not worried then they thought if the yeah. mother was gone then the exactly. father would acquiesce. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. They thought okay. she would be the problem. Okay. Yep. Then in April, of course there's thousands of diary entries, but we're just picking out ones that talk most to the case. And then in April, she says, "Anger against my mother has boiled up inside of me. It is she who is one of the main obstacles in my path." Suddenly, a means of ridding myself of the obstacle occurred to me. So in April, the wheels start turning. Okay. Right. So at the end of April, a few days later, she says, I did not tell Deborah. Deborah was her pet name for Juliet. Ah. So remember, I said they each had like five different names at different times. You know what? I remember this from the movie. You do. Okay. (laughs) So I did not tell Deborah of my plans for removing mother. The last fate I wish to meet is one in a boar style. Not sure what that means. It's one of their made-up things. Okay. I'm trying to think of some way. I want it to appear either a natural or accidental death. Okay, so she starts thinking about this, and she tells her girlfriend, Juliet or Deborah, about this, and it seems like she's on board. But this is bad because this shows that she was also the originator of the plan. It does. It does. And we'll talk about whether or not her punishment was any different. So the crime occurred on June 23rd. So we have diary entries leading up to the crime that are quite telling. So four days before the crime, she says, we practically finished our books, referring to the novels that the girls were writing together. And our children were both very into writing. And our main Ike for the day was to moiter mother, moiter. They didn't say murder. They said moiter. Okay. That's not just me having a weird speech deformity. (laughs) I'm actually glad you clarified. (laughs) Okay, she goes on to say, the notion is not a new one, but this time it is a definite plan that we intend to carry out. We have worked it out carefully and are both thrilled with the idea. Naturally, we feel a trifle nervous, but the pleasure of anticipation is great. 
So they're excited. <laughs> they're very excited. And there were reports the days leading up to the murder, the Humes report never seeing Juliet happier. Wow. There were also some reports that Pauline was in high spirits as well. The next day, we discussed our plans for moitering mother and made them a little clearer, even though I have no qualms of conscience. Or is it peculiar that we are so mad? So earlier in her journal, she talked about how the girls decided together that they were both mad. Another word for insane. Right. Not mad as in angry. Right. Two days before the murder. We have decided to use a brick and a stocking rather than a sandbag. We discuss the moiter fully. I feel keyed up as if I was planning a surprise party. So next time I write in the diary, mother will be dead. How odd, yet how pleasing. Like we're talking like cold-blooded murder here. It sounds, you know, I also, at first I'm like, it's very utilitarian, their crime, right? They see her as the obstacle, so yep. they're doing it just to get rid of her. But now it seems like they're getting an exhilaration, almost like the dopamine like feeling. Yeah. yeah, like a thrill kill, which is very different. So those two, that's they're entirely different, is my point. That's why this case is so interesting, because there are so many theories that can help us understand. Right. And... After I research this case, I'm definitely using this as a case study in my theory class because we have biological, sociological, psychological, it's everything. Oh, right. It really, it, when we <laughs> teach our intro class to oh, yeah. theories, this is this it, is a good case study. It right. really is. So the day before the murder, I am writing a little of this up in the morning before the death. I feel very excited. And the night before Christmassy, I did not have pleasant dreams, though. Okay, so what else was brought up at trial? Obviously, the diary entries were very big. Both sides used the diary entries to bolster their points, which is interesting. The girl's sexuality became a huge focus of this case. Not only was it a focus at trial, because again, homosexuality was equated with insanity, the media had a field day with this. Is this, do you think, I'm sure it was a big issue and I understand. Do you think this was also, was it like an attempt to like dirty up the, you know, dirty them up kind of? Mm -hmm. It's not just about the murder, but it's about their kind of, you know, you've heard it like those filthy perverted Absolutely. types. Okay. For example, one media outlet, the headline was dirty minded girls. The other one was homosexuality and murder. Exactly what you're talking about. So it's all about the salaciousness of their sexuality. Yep. Exactly. Okay. Although, to this day, nobody knows if they ever were engaged in a sexual relationship. But we'll explore that a little more when I talk about what happened. Okay. It was widely reported that the girls were unaffected and even disrespectful at trial, did not show remorse. They were put together prior to trial. They were housed together in jail, which is very something you don't see at least not in our country. I don't know how things are in New Zealand current day, but they were kept together prior to trial and they were tried together. We know oftentimes that happens. I was going to ask if they were, did they turn on each other? Nope. Interesting. Mm -mm. They did not. Okay. So the girls, not surprisingly, the girls were convicted of murder. August 28th, 1954, they were found sane and guilty. So guilty of what? Was it like they're guilty of premeditated murder? They were guilty of murder. Yes, they were guilty. And in New Zealand at the time, There was a minimum of 10 years. It was considered a life sentence, but in New Zealand at the time, a life sentence carried a minimum of 10 years. However, the girls, of course, they were very young, so they were too young to be considered for the death penalty. Okay, so that's what I was going to ask. So because of their age, the way New Zealand did it is that they were to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure. So in practice, this sentence meant that they were to be detained at the discretion of the Minister of Justice. What? Isn't that interesting? It was just an indeterminate sentencing. That's it. 
So Her Majesty is kind of like the, the parole board. Justice. Is that like a parole? I mean, it's almost essentially like a, a one person bo- a one, parole board. Right. Exactly. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So a one person parole board. And you want to guess how long they serve before being released at Her Majesty's pleasure? But so, okay. But was it a minimum of 10 years, you said? And it, then at- it would have. It would have been. But it, Okay. So that's my question. Is it a minimum of 10 years or at Her Majesty's pleasure? So it's a minimum of 10 years if they weren't children. The fact that they were children, it became uh, at Her Majesty's pleasure. Sorry, it's a little confusing because it's quite different from our system. No, that's different. It's yeah. also 1954. So that's it's true. an indeterminate. Everyone was more indeterminate into rehabilitation and, and more focused on children being children. I'm going to guess that they served five years. Yes. <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> so they were housed separately. Totally different facilities. That was going to be my next question. They were not allowed to communicate, although there are some reports that they were writing letters via other inmates at the facilities. I have a more interesting question. I'm going to say five years. They're both released. My question's going to be, and I don't know if I'm jumping the gun yeah. so you can tell me, did they wind up finding each other after? Did these two wind up together or did they go their own ways? So everyone including myself, I was shocked that they've never had, they're both still alive to this day, and we'll talk about where they are now. They never had any contact with each other. Again, the only speculation is that they wrote letters during their time incarcerated, but as part of their, so Pauline was released and she had to be on probation for, uh, she had a term of probation where Juliet was just released without any, you know, any probation. Part of their terms of release was that they could not contact each other. And by all accounts, they never contacted each other. Wow, okay. Based on what we know about their relationship, I was really surprised by that. I'm surprised by that too, but you often see when, especially when kids, teenagers commit these crimes and they're so crazy in love and they need to be mm-hmm. together. Once they've spent a couple of years in, in prison, mm-hmm. it's all of a sudden, what you know, I'm not sure what I was thinking and now I'm, I've grown out of it. Yeah, it seems like that might've been what happened. Okay, so after being released from prison... Again, they're quite young. They're around 20 years old. They have a whole life ahead of them here, right? So there's a lot to talk about because they were released in mid-70s. And here we are in 2019. So what has been going on with these two women since? So after being released from prison, Hume returned to England. Juliet, she became a flight attendant. I do want to point out that they both changed their names upon release. That makes sense. That case was notorious. Yep. But from what I read, the government gave them new identities. Isn't that interesting? It's weird. Mm-hmm. So they were in witness protection. It sounds like it, right? I'm so no. So let's talk about Juliet first. Okay. okay. Juliet Hume returned to England, became a flight attendant for a period. She lived in the United States as a nanny, flying under the radar. Nobody knows who any who these women are at this point. She changed her name. She reinvented herself as Anne Perry, which we'll talk a little bit more about the significance of that name in a minute. But she was a nanny for quite a few years. She became very involved in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Some say it's because they have such a strong focus on forgiveness, but possibly it's unknown. Um, Pauline, again, now Hillary, also became quite religious. She later settled in a Scottish village. The most interesting thing is she became Anne Perry. Okay, do you know who Anne Perry is? Does that name sound familiar to you? Nope. Okay, so remember we talked about the movie Heavenly Creatures? Came out in 1994. Yes. Up until this movie, nobody knew where Juliet and Pauline went. 
There was no media attention when they were released. It was kept quiet and they gave new names. Nobody knew where these women were. For 20 years, it's like everyone forgot about them. Movie Heavenly Creatures comes out. It's a hit, international hit. Journalists start poking around. Who are these women? So they find Juliet Hume. Juliet Hume is now living as Anne Perry. Anne Perry is an internationally known New York Times bestselling author of crime fiction. Anne Perry. Do you know the author Anne Perry? I just can't think of it, but you're telling me she assumed... She's written over 50 novels. Wait! Yeah. I thought you meant she assumed it. She's actually Anne Perry? No, that's what I mean. She's uh, Anne Perry. I thought you were saying she assumed this name of this oh, famous... Oh, no. I'm sorry. She's a famous novelist. Stop it. Yeah, so Anne Perry, anyone who reads crime novels, it's also known as like detective fiction, historical murder mystery. She has over 50 novels, countless number of short stories. They've received critical acclaim, huge success. Over 20 million books are in print worldwide. That's unbelievable. <laughs> that's the best part of the story. I know. That's why I waited. Oh, my gosh. Wow. So in 1994, okay. what happens is, you know, someone does the digging and they find out, they they trace who Hilda Hume is and they find through records that she has a daughter who now is Anne Perry because Anne Perry is still in touch with her Hume family. So Got it. So a journalist calls up. Anne Perry's agent, she has a literary agent because she's like a huge time internationally best-selling author. And they're like, hey, um, do you know Anne Perry is actually Juliet Hume? And she's like, what? So she calls Anne and says, hey, this reporter called me and said, and Anne owned up to it. She said who she was and she did talk to the media and did a few interviews. She shows no remorse. No remorse. She somewhat throws Pauline under the bus in the sense that I felt like I had to, it seems like she felt like she had to do it because it was either Pauline was going to kill herself or her mother was going to go. She doesn't talk very much about it, but she okay. she gives the impression, someone asked if she was remorseful and she said, well, I didn't really know Honora very well. Certainly that's not, uh, that's not remorseful for partaking in a crime. It's not. It almost seems like she's totally disassociated herself okay. with that whole, I mean, she's living Possible. a whole nother life. Like I said, she's very well off. So she lives in a small... So she spent a lot of time in California and then she settled in a small Scottish village okay. and she still publishes like crazy. And okay, um, remember her brother that we mentioned from when she was younger, her brother now works for her, I think like doing transcription. She's still doing her thing. Okay, um, She also... There's a documentary on Prime, but it was about like writing, not anything about this case. So Pauline, again, now lives as Hillary Nathan. She lives a very different life. Okay. Anne Perry is in the public eye. Like I said, she's doing, a, she's writing a lot and getting, you know, noticed all the time as a critically acclaimed author. Hillary lives a quiet life. She was a librarian. She now runs, I believe, some sort of horse farm. She never spoke to the public. The only time anyone had any information on her is when her sister spoke to the media and told the media that her, that her sister, who was once Pauline, has little contact with the outside world. She's a devout Roman Catholic and spends much of her days in prayer. Ironically, her and Pauline both live in Scotland. They're only about 10 or 11 hours apart, but zero contact. Do, since. You, do you know if either one of them ever went on to marry or have children? No. No. They both remain single. Anne Perry, in an interview, said that the girl's relationship was not homosexual in any way. And apparently was dating here and there. She does live with a woman. Apparently, it's a best friend who's also, I think, her agent. But, you know, there's speculation all the time. Of course. 
Um, so yeah, they both they both remain childless, not married throughout their whole lifetimes. They're both in their 80s now. I was going to say, they must be old. Yeah, wow. They're in their 80s. So, so that's the case. As I mentioned, the book by Peter Graham is so comprehensive and gives more detail than I can ever cover here. So oh, definitely I, check out the book if you're interested. Clearly feel like I will. So I just want to talk about matricide for a minute. Okay. Because it is so rare. It is. Like less than 1% of all murders are, I'm sorry, matricide is killing one's mother, right? Correct. So when you look at the statistics surrounding matricide, not only is it rare, 82% of all matricides, people act alone, and two-thirds are carried out by an adult son. It's typically after there's repeated abuse. So it, this case is so interesting because it's the crime is so rare, and then plus you have both girls, and we have all these theories that can help us understand, right? Was there a pathology. Neither girl was ever diagnosed with anything. That, that doesn't mean there was no disorder, but there's biological, psychological, sociological explanations that can help us understand this case. But it's still so difficult to wrap your head around, especially being that these girls never spoke again after that. Right. It does sound to me, I have to say, it sounds like they had elements of shared psychosis. I, I couldn't be sure because of their age, because I think they probably did I wouldn't have given these girls life in prison. I mean, I think that would have been too harsh at the time, considering their age and the possibility of this mental illness and the stigma around homosexuality. But certainly it was brutal and violent. I'm pretty sure five years wasn't enough for this either. I'm going to have to agree with that. I, too, feel like we cannot sentence children the way I do think they could have done more to maybe rehabilitate the girls. That so sounds like neither one of them was remorseful. They never took ownership for what they did. They put them in, a, you know, a jail. As far as I understand, it was an adult facility. I think they could have used a little more coaching. Five years is really just, I mean, this woman was brutally attacked. Oh, no. And it was premeditated. Yeah. And I certainly agree with you. I think it sounds like a vicious crime. Then again, this is New Zealand. What would have happened in America? They probably would have tried them as adults. Interesting. Pauline is lower class. Juliet was very well, her father was very well established. So it's interesting to look at the class differences and... Well, in, in America, then they probably would have had different outcomes because that's of That's what their I'm class. saying. But they also would have been given the time, they still wouldn't have received the sentences they would now because as yeah. you and I teach in our classes, you know, in the 1960s and 70s, there was that focus on rehabilitation and indeterminate sentencing, whereas now it's much harsher and children are tried as adults and they receive very adult sentences. But you know, New Jersey recently passed, juveniles cannot receive life without parole anymore. So at least we're heading in the right direction. I but do know that. We're in a progressive state. Certainly a really interesting case, Amy. Thank you, Megan. And thank you so much for listening to my case this week. Thank you, everyone. And that's it for us. We'll see you next time. Bye. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Our music is composed by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, you can get access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Seeking the truth never gets old. 
Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.